0: Hi, my name is Daniel, and today we're joined by famous hedge fund founder Pierre Lagrange, and now the non executive chairman for Huntsman, one of the most famous and prestigious tailors on London Saddle Row. For those who don't perhaps know as much about you, could you tell us a bit about what your current role entails on a day to day basis?
1: I'm an investor, so uh, I'm looking at a lot of different projects and um, sort of um, Constantly looking through all the new ideas that come around the world from all different places. And then I also um, help the Huntsman team to navigate the changes around in the world on um, how people look at um, luxury, how people uh, change the experience. Um, so I'm doing that, which is quite quite interesting. And then I've also got a very young baby girl who's seven months old and three kids who are probably your age. So that keeps me busy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really good. So at the start of your career, you started uh, working in finance after a university. And would you say that there's as much opportunity in finance as when you got started, do you think you would enter it again if you were my age or your son's and daughter's age today?
1: Uh, it depends on your skills, I think. Uh... I suppose so, it will either be that or uh, more on the technology side. So you see, at my age, I'm nearly 60. So when um, I sort of was in college in the American definition, so engineering school, very very few people. I mean, computing was, you know, we we were still working with COBOL, which is a language that anybody of your generation doesn't even know what it is. And so I totally missed that sort of computing vague. And I think now, especially when I see what you can create and how you can leverage yourself if you're really good at something. I think that kind of scale where you're really good, you're better than the other guys or girls, or you are at the right time with the, you know, the gross margin of uh, intellectual sort of creativity on the scientific side, on the technology side is absolutely enormous. And um, now there's a lot of fails and on average, probably terrifying. But it's the same thing in the hedge fund where at the end of the day, you know, the average performance was not as good as it should be. But you had that if you were either good or either you had good people working with you or you just got lucky, you could really make a killing, which is quite exciting when you sort of bred to 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 win and succeed. So I like the idea of something where your intellectual property can basically be leveraged very, very large. And I think the technology is way higher because the barriers to entry now have changed totally. And um, some of these things have got a scale that's just enormous. So consumer technology, uh, fintech, all these sort of things, or healthcare. Now, healthcare is something, well, it's beyond even technology, it's so much more difficult, but uh, so the answer is yes, I would still do finance. There are still a lot of opportunities.
0: Sure. And so when you started, you were working at Goldman Sachs. What was, the, would you say that sort of the motivation to start GLG, to sort of having these kind of really great people around you and sort of the small firm where um, you can do very well? What do you think sort of contributed to sort of a great success of the fund?
1: Well, I would have been nothing without my partners uh, with whom we set up the, the business and that's been a constant uh, iteration in my life and career where, you know, I remember doing a, a speech at Eton when one of my kids went to school and he asked me what was the most important thing and said, listen, I chose the right person to be my partner in life because, you know, you need somebody to support you and then I chose the right partner uh, to leave Goldman Sachs and set up this business because you need somebody to support you. You need somebody who's going to be different than you. You need somebody who's going to be there when things are terrible because they will be. This is about learning about oneself. I'm not super self-aware, but for that, I think I am, which is I am thriving, leveraging other people around me. I'm a I'm a, I'm a sponge, I soak up, you know, if I'm in a room, I mean, my husband always say that I can listen to five conversations at a time in a restaurant. And like, I never got disturbed to be on a trading floor, because I will hear something somewhere, and I could just relate to that and then leverage that. So one plus one for me equals five when I work in environment, you leave me alone. Uh, I'm not that kind of guy, you know, so that's why I've never been like, On my own just doing my small hedge fund and taking all the decisions so i'm better at finding the right people than just doing everything myself so for instance this is much later but Mm. i chose a model which i mean the best in that world is millennium but uh, i had a small version of that which is i empower very good people and instead of judging every single decision they make I basically gave them an amount of flexibility and risk and parameters. So therefore I pushed down the decision-making process to their level so that that's how you get the best out of people or actually the weakest sort of die. So uh, you get an attrition uh, to the successful one. But so I've always seen, you know, I, I, I worked at JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. I love big structures uh because there's an an enormous amount of talent available Mm. that is for free around you
0: yeah that's really interesting and in a previous talk you sort of discussed how you shouldn't sort of be worried about breaking traditions is that an approach that characterized the work at glg or is that sort of an approach that you kind of found later in your career
1: oh it's in everywhere anything people tell you might not be true, or might not be the best way to do it. So I'm kind of nearly impossible for that, because I kind of rarely accept something uh, on face value. I need to understand, I need to really looking at, is this really the best way to do this? So you should not be scared of breaking tradition. When I bought Huntsman, one of my friends, who's an 86-year-old man now, just a wonderful gentleman, told me something which I never forget, which is you know what is a tradition? It's an innovation that lasted. And so, if you think about it, Savile Row didn't exist before Beau Brummel came back from France and decided this is how people are going to get dressed in England. And because he was friend with the king, people followed him even to watch him having a bath and being <laughs> perfumed. I mean, you would think like this is crazy stuff. But before Savile Row was a row of doctors. And guess what, in a generation, it became the mecca of sartorial flair. So it's constantly like that. You have to always looking at keep what's good and kill what's what can be done. Like uh, you may have seen, there was a great New York Times piece on Savvy Row where we featured very prominently this weekend. And what they loved about it is everybody's very worried about doing innovation, bringing technology into a craft by hand. And my point was that this is where you get it wrong. Uh, You don't wanna replace people by machine as much as empower people with the machine. So therefore what I've done is that if you take it very simply using teleporting robots, I'm now able to get the client and the cutter in the same room from an experience point of view and from a quality of the performance that the cutter will have at the fitting, without traveling and without having to wait for all the lead time that visiting in foreign countries. So suddenly, the guy who's been trained since he was 16 as an apprentice and works by hand, and that's magical, is able to do a better job because of the technology. And most people freak out, oh my God, technology and handcraft, no, and say, well, Actually, that's silly, because if the technology can empower the guy to focus more of his time on his handcraft, everybody wins. Mm -hmm. And so if you go back to the hedge fund, I was always looking at that with the people working with me or around me, which is like, let's get the machine to do the things which are mechanical and we don't need to have somebody highly trained and highly paid to do. So then, therefore, you can focus the time that everybody is spending a better use of your time, you know, time is your capital. So it's all about return on capital employed. And if you take time, look at what you've done today. Did you really allocate the time the way that you maximize your return on capital employed. And when you start thinking about that, then you can break tradition by thinking, I don't need this guy to do all that, we can have an assistant do that. And then he can spend his time doing what only him can do.
0: That's very interesting. Before we sort of move on to Hans and more, just kind of one more question on, on GLG. It's been characterized by a discretionary approach to investing rather than sort of quantitative um, or sort of arbitrage. What made you sort of want to pursue that discretionary approach when other funds were kind of looking towards using computational power uh, and sort of statistical arbitrage?
1: So that is not my background that's not where i came from so uh and i learned that uh where i was strong is really on the discretionary and by the way glg was so big that actually we had computer arbitrage and then we were man glg which is the biggest one in the world in terms of quantitative uh strategy but what i would say is that back to what i was telling my guys to do which is you know for instance i never my kid is kind of can't believe this but I never made a call on the market because I have no clue uh, where the market is going. But can I make a call on Walmart against Amazon or Sainsbury against, I don't know, Starbucks, these kind of things? Yes, that's where I think I can actually leverage my intellectual capabilities. And so for me, it was a matter of focusing my risk on where do I have an edge compared to the machine? And back to the machine, what I did over the years is to basically migrate a lot of the work to the machine. For instance, the whole risk management, the whole uh, beta neutralization, the whole factor uh, management. There's absolutely no reason why I should have had somebody paid to do that compared to pay somebody to develop the algos to basically do that. And so Uh therefore, over the years, what we've seen, and especially when we merge with man, that suddenly opened the door. And I'm a very curious person by design. So it was like, okay, I need to understand how the machines function, because I'm struggling with taking the right decision, for instance, on managing market exposure. So how do the algo do that? Oh, the algo do that this way. And there's like an automatic sort of... reaction to volatility spikes which are a leading indicator of a change of direction or whatever this is not something that me trying to analyze a company or most of the humans working around me are good at so let's get the algos to take over that and let's say that risk now is being managed that way so i can actually focus on putting the risk on where you know the algos are not really or at least we're talking about five years ago they were not really good at telling you whether you know pizza express was going to be better than burger king that's where you could really do a lot of research meeting with the company management and that's where i'm good at you leave me with a company in a meeting for one hour i will find the three things that really matter about where the stock should go on a relative basis on an absolute basis no clue because again i don't want to take risk on the market so that's why I put myself in that direction.
0: That's really interesting, kind of approaching sort of things relatively. What were sort of the, the lessons that you took from running a successful hedge fund to running sort of one of the most prestigious tailors in Savile Bay? Any sort of strong similarities that stood out to you? OK,
1: the, on, on the hedge fund side, uh, I think the lesson is that it's all about risk management at the end of the day. And it's, it's a matter of self-awareness. You need to fight the battles that you can win the the key point is that if you if you read Moneyball and if you're looking at uh sports science you'll see mm-hmm. that batting average are really important for instance you know how many times are you right compared to are you wrong and yeah. most people have a pattern and you need to basically what fighting the kind of being right or wrong is kind of less relevant than how much are you wrong when you're wrong and how much are you right when you're right? And so therefore, it's all about managing, finding ways to managing to limit the downside when you're wrong and to let you know the upside carry on, which quite often you tend to be belligerent and take your gains too early and not cut your losses enough. So it's kind of really learning to be systematic about managing the negative outcome because mm-hmm. your emotions are gonna lead you in the wrong way. So trying to put a system in place so you take the emotion out of the equation. That, for me, is the big lesson. And and at the end of the day, it's everybody can make money. It's how much do you lose when you're wrong. And that's where the difference is between a good investor and a great investor. In terms of the read-across to um, Huntsman, uh, it's talent management. At the end of the day, you need to create an environment where there's room for failure. It's a matter of accepting that failure because it is happened statistically one times out of three at best for an investor. Think about that. I'm not talking about private equity, but then therefore it's very important that you give the space to fail in a safe way. And it's the same thing, um, you know, in a different way, but at Huntsman way, you give the space to fail for uh, the individual actors so that you can nurture them that's how you get the best out of them and uh, yeah. people feel comfortable that it's okay if they get it wrong they will get it wrong much less um, you know we talk about enhancement craftsmen who um, love their job the motivation are uh, much less about making the money but more do the most beautiful thing on earth that's very different but the talent management is uh, very very similar
0: that's really interesting there's been recently kind of Bit of a growth in casual wear and lounge wear over the years with number of firms including financial firms making their dress code less formal given that huntsman's heritage is very much in that very prestigious formal wear how do you adapt to this how do you see this, the landscape changing
1: the, the landscape has been changing for uh, a long time if you look at the archive from 1919 uh, you start seeing people moving from these, uh, uh, fixed color, uh, starch color shirt to lounge suits. That's the first time you see lounge suits appearing in enhancement books. It's after the war. So it's telling you that was hundred years ago, we already sell more separates than suits, which are jackets and trousers. And at the end of the day, we're in a lucky position in a way is that we don't sell suits to people who need a suit. Uh, but it's for people who want a suit, so it's an object of desire, it's an object of luxury and it's something you're going to keep forever. So we see more and more people who are actually interested in having that special peace commission because it's truly theirs, it's going to fit them like, you know, I only discovered Bespoke when I was nearly 50. And I mm-hmm. wonder why on earth have I missed that, because the value is there, it's an upfront investment, not more than expensive ready to wear but you keep it forever. And so uh-huh. I think more and more, that's how these qualities of sustainability without falling into the cliche of personalization and experience, you know, we were doing experience retailing before people talked about it. You go to your, your tailor and you've got this extraordinary uh, sort of moment and then you get something that makes you look really good. Now, uh-huh. you know, you take the killer jacket with the pair of jeans and trainers, or you just have a t-shirt and a really cool, well-fitted, uh, trousers, but then you go to, you know, a club or you go to a business meeting and you've got, um, you know, either separates or, or suits or, or smoking or whatever. There's a lot of different ways to, uh, to create the perfect huntsman, uh, bespoke garment. Um, Mm -hmm. so, it, it, it is an interesting market moment for us
0: yeah that's really interesting perhaps sort of one final question obviously you're very successful at this point in your career what gets you up in the morning what what motivates you and gets you on your stride
1: success is a relative thing you know you're surrounded by people more successful than you richer than you bigger than you more good looking than you so it, it's more like Are you doing something that's relevant to you and um, so i'm doing things that i really love doing now i've actually i've been doing things i love doing for my whole life after i studied i didn't really like what i studied but it was a way to get to the next level and so it was the best passport but then after that i really enjoy what i did i think you have to look more for relevance more than success Uh, for instance if i make huntsman a really sustainable, great business. I think that's much more interesting than what I did on the hedge fund side. Now I can only afford it because of the money I've made on the hedge fund side, but I think it's much more interesting for that because mm-hmm. I would have shown that you can take a business that people think it doesn't belong to today, but actually I can show that I've created scale in luxury, in bespoke and a very desirable business. And I've been the custodian and protected a business for the next 100 years that would be really cool i'm working on that but um so i think it's about you know it's about finding things that are have relevance and purpose more than just you know financial success easy to say when you've made the money okay i appreciate that uh but so it, that's why it's show it. it's not about it's about making things that matters still with the humility that okay uh you know it's quite difficult but if you can do it at your own micro level
0: that's really interesting i think we can all agree that that was a very interesting discussion into a few areas that we don't really normally explore on focal points so i hope everyone's found that illuminating obviously i want to extend pierre a very big thank you for taking the time to speak to us and stay tuned for further episodes
1: you're welcome daniel take care
0: thank you very much